everyone, and welcome to Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy. I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And on Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, we usually take about 20 minutes to talk <laughs> about fun things we've done in the past, you know, few weeks. Maybe we take a hiatus on accident, who knows, but this time we're going right into it and talking about three films. Usually we pick films, whether tied by cast and crew, thematic elements, or just numerical order. We go through each film one by one and discuss the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. And today we've got a weird one, mainly because of just how in-depth we're going to go. <laughs> sure. And in terms of its creation, because this is something that is a trilogy, not because this was intended to be a trilogy initially, this is something that became a trilogy almost on accident, but a <laughs> yeah. happy accident. It was not designed to be a trilogy. No, absolutely but not. But in fact an adaptation of something else. Yes, because today we are talking about the Mobile Suit Gundam movie trilogy. So in case you don't know, Mobile Suit Gundam is an anime that first showed up on the scene in 1979, or was it late 78? It was 79, yeah. Okay, so it was um, about 79. It was a series that ran for about 43, 45 episodes. It was supposed to go much longer, but then got canceled due to no one watching it. And so they just thought, all right, sadly, you know, we're never going to come back to this, but hey, let's end it on a high note. So they end the show on a higher note. And they're just going to let it die. Until the parent company noticed <laughs> uh, Bandai Namco. Is it, is it Bandai Namco at the time? Uh, is it some, at the time, it, it was still just Sunrise. It was just still the Sunrise. Um, animation okay. House. Gotcha. So Sunrise Animation House, while Mobile Suit Gundam finishes off its series, about a year later, notices that the show is getting a lot more popularity on VHS, with rentals, with reruns, and specifically, more importantly, especially to a company, the model kits that kids were buying and building, yeah. known as Gunpla, basically building Gundam suits. Yeah, plastic models of the, the robots from the series. Yes, and, um, be, and because of that, Sunrise decided, well, hey, now that the popularity is picked up, maybe we can revitalize the interest in the popularity of the series by creating compilation films basically mm -hmm. taking the 43 to 45 episodes and turning it into what would be probably closer to 20 hours maybe 22 hours and kind of dice like kind of distilling diluting it that. yeah distilling it down to about seven yeah a little over seven <clears throat> and those films are uh from 1981 we have mobile suit gundam one and mobile suit gundam two soldiers of sorrow and then we have 1982's mobile suit gundam three encounters in space yeah, so what we've got here is a little bit of, uh, it's odder from a Western perspective yes. than it is from a Japanese perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, here in the States, we're not really accustomed to the concept of compilation films or taking a TV show and cutting it into movies. Um, not that it hasn't happened in the Western oh, no. Hemisphere, yes. but um, it's much more common due to the popularity of anime mm -hmm. in Japan. Yeah, cause um, I, I think for American standards, in terms of just like Western animation-wise, this would be the equivalent of something... I think the closest we've gotten to this is when studios try to do backdoor pilots for shows, right. and people aren't fully interested, so they just basically turn the pilot into a feature <laughs> yeah. as a direct-to-DVD or direct-to-video. Something like the Atlantis sequel film to Atlantis yeah. The Lost Empire. It's not really a sequel. It is just a pilot to a show that no one wanted. Right. So they turned it into a film, basically. Right. As best as they could turn it into a film. And that's kind of more of like what we're used to. But like, right. 
in a Western sense, what happens with Gundam is basically if, you know, Disney took a, a, an animation show that they kind of cut abruptly and then two years later went, oh, shit, let's make three films out of this. Yeah. And so th- what ends up kind of making this unusual, even in the case of Japanese media, is the fact that the show was pretty much overlooked originally yeah. and kind of only holds the the major grip on pop culture, especially in Japan and other Asian countries today because of the toy line that spawned from it and uh, subsequently the, the feature films that were made out of it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of an interesting origin story. For those who don't know Gundam, maybe have heard the word or, you know, have yes. seen the commercials of the robots on TV or whatever, have flipped by it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, one of the most popular media franchises in Japan. Um, yeah, it's not really, I mean, it, it wouldn't be inaccurate to basically call it Japan's Star Wars, just in terms of, yeah. uh, cultural, um, prolificness and, and presence in the public consciousness. Um, imagine if Star Wars never really had a hiatus. It basically was just like, anytime it seemed like the show was on a down, like maybe, <laughs> kind of like not as popular as other versions of the show they would just make a new version right that would maybe be even more popular in its own sense like gundam is basically like what if star wars just kept making different alternate timelines that <laughs> yeah. are technically star wars but not original star wars right gundam has like 20 plus series <laughs> yeah you could almost in terms of the the continuities you could almost uh, liken it more to western uh comic books yes. where you've got yes. you know your mainline marvel 616 universe but then you've got the ultimate comics and you've mm-hmm. got all these other offshoot stories that are about the same characters but like slightly different versions of them yeah. in different universes but the consistent themes are giant robots kids piloting giant robots war is bad yeah and that's really mainly yeah, it. That's, that's the main. Gist. I was about to say also beam weapons, but some versions of Gundam <laughs> just don't even have that. Right, right. So it's just like, yeah, it's basically an anti-war, you know, commentary on, you know, just. Yeah, it's a, it's an anti-war commentary featuring or like making use of the, the mecha genre, which yes. is a very popular kind of subsect of um anime or even media in general um you know which mm-hmm. is just centering sh- stories centering around giant robots yeah um and it's it's using it's <laughs> using the guise per se of space and sci-fi and robots and beam weapons that are basically lightsabers to an extent and you know laser guns and whatnot to basically deal with the idea of like anti-war collective trauma many different just very darker maybe yeah. more mature themes that socio-political are... conflicts yes. and that sort of oh thing oh my god um... so many socio-political conflicts <laughs> and fucking gundam and we will get into that more and yes. the, the themes of all this but um yeah basically it's uh it's it's that kind of cross-pollinated media phenomenon i mean the the characters from from gundam are you know in mcdonald's commercials and on mm-hmm. all sorts of merchandise just like we have yoda on bags of oranges yes. here at our local grocery stores they have uh the the kind of antagonist from gundam Shar osnable on their mcdonald's sandwich wrappers mm-hmm. i um, mean the the classic rx 72 or 73 70 uh, 78 78 
Yeah. <laughs> so like the RX seventy eight two Gundam, which is like the the main the well, original the original Gundam, is in stuff like Ready Player One. It's yeah. Basically, when you when anyone says Gundam, it's usually talking about that design, right? And to the point where that design is like a giant statue, like I mean, gigantic statue in Japan. Yeah, they actually have life size Gundam statues in Japan. One of which moves like an mm-hmm. actual functioning Gundam. It's not functioning. You can't pilot it. Yes. But it moves as though. And if you could pilot it, I don't think any 14-year-olds really want to jump in there. <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, really have a bad time like most yeah. Gundam and de- protagonists do. So needless to say, in, in Japan, Gundam is and has been huge for 40 years. Yes. Um, less so in the Western Hemisphere. It has its fans over here. Mm-hmm. But um, most people, especially people our age would probably be familiar with Gundam through uh, Cartoon Network's uh, anime block Toonami yes. around yes. the late 90s and early 2000s. They would, I think they did air the original Mobile Suit Gundam series, but they also aired Gundam Wing, Gundam Wing. which was a mm-hmm. 90s uh, Gundam anime. And that is a lot of people's, a lot of Americans kind of entry into the franchise. I can yeah. remember seeing little bits of it on TV as a kid. I never kept up with it, but... Yeah, in the, um, in the States, basically, Gundam has had more ebbs and flows in terms of popularity, where it's like, in the late 90s, early 2000s, like Andy said, it's Gundam Wing. Later on, in like the 2010s, maybe you, if you have friends who are into anime, you probably have heard the, the term Iron-Blooded Orphans, which is a Mobile Suit Gundam series. Mm-hmm. And then currently, there's a series called Witch from Mercury that's finishing its back half of season one that's getting yeah. a lot of buzz. So, like... But that's like with like six, seven years between each series, basically. Right, right. There's in and with the kind of proliferation of streaming of of global media, I think what we've seen maybe in the last decade or so is kind of an increase in awareness or enthusiasm in Gundam yeah. in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, like there are like five different Gundam things on Netflix. Um, yes. There's a bunch, yes. you know, on Crunchyroll, of course, and Crunchyroll has gotten incredibly popular as a way of consuming mm-hmm. uh, anime in, uh, well, all over the world. Yes. Um, I think there is, I mean, yeah, Crunchyroll has like a show called Double Zeta Gundam, which is the <laughs> third series. And it's, I think it, when it originally ran, I think there was a dub initially, but didn't fully finish. Yeah, I don't think they ever finished the yeah producing and it now you can't find it because it's it's just lost <laughs> in the ether so like for the first time in a while you can watch the original dialogue japanese dialogue but overall it is it's fascinating how much more gundam content is out now and it's also kind of fascinating how a lot of it and i think a lot of this resurgence in the last few years has happened because of netflix yeah so like we are not this is not sponsored by netflix in any way <laughs> no. again we have we have talked about like the good and bad of netflix original stuff as well as Netflix kind of hold on the market, especially streaming. But right. fascinatingly enough, when it comes to Gundam, Netflix basically brought it back into kind of the ether and kind of got it to the public eye, especially in Western culture, with the fact that they have the exclusive streaming rights, I believe, to these films. Yeah. Like, if you want to yeah. watch these films, you if you have a Netflix account, good news, you can watch all of them. On top of... Right. You can't... I mean... I will clarify as well, the more we get into this, Andy and I are 
pretty uh, we're pretty much deep into Gundam. Yeah. Yeah. Point. Let's. Yeah. Let's. We will try our best it. not to get too deep into the miasma of like. <laughs> universal century or any kind of like minutia stuff sure but we can we can series. talk a little bit about kind of how we've gotten yes. into it we're, oh yes. we're both relatively speaking fairly new mm-hmm. um to the franchise i i think it was uh, about a year and a half ago uh-huh. um uh obviously you and i both try to watch all the movies we can in a given year and you yeah. know for our for our year-end considerations and rankings and articles that we write and stuff um and a friend of mine uh who lives in australia um commented on one of my facebook posts talking about my year-end considerations and was like uh yeah i better see uh, the new gundam movie in your your end of year ranking and i was like i mean i'll watch it but do yeah. I have to watch anything else first to understand it? And yeah. he, you know, cracked his knuckles and was like, oh boy, let me tell you. Um, and yeah. for whatever reason, I was feeling possessed and decided to take the assignment. Uh, which certainly did. <laughs> which meant watching not only this trilogy that we're talking about today, but also the sequel series, which is a 50-episode anime, a uh, mm-hmm. feature film following that sequel series, Um to in order to prepare so that I could understand the newest film at that time, Gundam Hathaway. Um, so yes. uh, yeah, so I basically uh, dove in head head first and kind of fell in love immediately and have been watching all the other shit ever since. Um, and uh, yeah, and then recently, you uh, about six months ago, no, almost. Uh, basically, at the end of last year. Um, I was heading to uh, a cruise for late Christmas, you know, kind of New Year's Eve with family uh, vacation. And on the way there, I think, yeah, something just stirred in me that I just I knew how much you had enjoyed the show. And I was Mm. like, I mean, we have similar tastes. (laughs) I feel like this would hit somewhere. And then I started watching a few episodes and then I couldn't because the the cruise had no Wi-Fi, surprisingly. (laughs) Uh, not really. I mean, it was it yeah. we're in the middle of the ocean. It makes sense. But when I got back, I basically jumped in and I just did not come back up for air. I just <laughs> it I, sucks you in. Yeah, it literally. I mean, it's kind of fascinating too because like when, when we talk about these films, we'll also clarify that like there is a difference between the both of us in terms of how we got into it because yeah. Andy got into it through the these films we're talking about today. Yeah. I got into the show through the show. The, I, yeah, li- the I literally wa- I literally watched all 43 episodes because <laughs> I was curious about like what is the grind here if right. you're trying to get into it from like the beginning up and I do not regret it but it is absolutely what you would think is in terms of 43 episodes of a show that's made for kids maybe for yeah. teenagers yeah closer to teenagers and the fact that like as an anime made in the late 70s there's going to be a lot of filler it's gonna be a lot of downtime. There's yeah, gonna be a lot it's... of this. There's gonna be a lot of that. Filling the gaps because you know, you want to you want to save up the money for sure. the, the big important stuff that's about to happen. So yeah, well, and it's it's also um, kind of a monster, a little bit of a monster of the week format. Yes, um, not that there are really monsters in Gundam, but it's you know this new mobile suit robot mm-hmm. shows up in this episode and Amaro, the main character has to defeat it. And then next week he's got a new thing. He's got to fight. That's pretty, that's pretty much the show. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's fun to think about that and then watch the movies with you and like with our friends. Cause we also indoctrinated uh, <laughs> our friend Adam and it was fun to watch it and be like, huh, 
yeah, there is like another robot they fight here, but it really isn't that important. I guess yeah, you could just move on. There's a number of them that are cut from the movies yes. because they were kind of just it's filling time yeah, in, the, in the show. Because it's like 20 hours if you didn't. <laughs> like it's it is fascinating to th- it's also fascinating to think the fact that like when you look through Gundam as a as a series in terms of like every single Gundam show, there are very few Gundam shows that actually do what this series does where it has the trilogy of compilation films. There are other trilogies, which oh, we, will, of course. we will discuss, but like most of the other Gundam shows usually have one, maybe two compilation films that kind of cut everything together, yeah. but it's not to the point where these films were, where it's like get a theatrical release, get new animation. Like mm-hmm. it's Usually with those compilation films, there might be some new animation, but it's really just to fill in the gaps, and it kind of almost feels like filler- to kind of give more of a context to yeah. something that it seems pretty cut together. But I mean, yeah. Oh, when I, and also the other main reason why is I wanted to shock you. I wanted to <laughs> basically get into Gundam and just have more knowledge than I had any right to of Gundam and then just surprise you. And which I did because basically one night I told Andy, we're doing a surprise movie night and I wasn't going to tell him. And then he showed up and it was Char's counterattack, <laughs> which is, the film that comes after the sequel series that is canon. Yeah. Because again, this it's is kind of the the conclusion to the arc that has started yeah. in this this yes. trilogy. And it was it was fun to kind of get into the swing of you know talking to you about Gundam and also talking about the amount of Gundam you've you know consumed and how much I want to and just because Gundam is yeah it's fascinating. Yeah. One of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this too is not because we love Gundam and we want to have an excuse to talk about it. We most <laughs> certainly love that part of it. But in reality, too, what's so kind of cool about Gundam and with these films is, like, you could literally watch these three films. And while, you know, personally, there are some things that these films are missing from the show, overall, you get all that you really, what you really necessarily need for Love of Gundam, you get in these three films. Yeah. From the first one, really just doing a bang-up job of just being two hours, really kind of condensing everything down to like oh so this is the premise this is what the show would be if i watched the show yeah and then like with two and three really just like okay we're gonna take what we did for one and we're just really going to amp it up and kind of you know season it here you know play with it here and really just kind of mold it into something that is so much more fascinating than you would think initially yeah it uh it does an impressive job of kind of not only hitting the the beats of the grand storyline mm-hmm. um but also dropping in the bits of character development for the the yes. uh, ensemble that you need as well as maintaining the kind of uh thematic in- integrity and emotional mm-hmm. um through lines that are that are established in the thr- in the show and you do certainly get more time with these characters in the show you do yes um, but they're especially some of the villains um yes that yeah. kind of are, are there and then they're not in the compilation films but um y- yeah there's like there's a in the first film there is a there's a big death that happens that shocks this doesn't shock anybody but like it basically like shakes the core of the antagonist side basically uh-huh. uh a young death that basically shocks <laughs> the evil zombie family and in the show, there's even a uh, an episode that comes after the death of that character where you follow that character's girlfriend as she tries to kill the main character and fails. 
and is like, oh, this is kind of rad, but also like really fucked up. Yeah. And then like in the movie, it's like oh, we could do this, but like it doesn't really, it doesn't have to fit. We're just gonna. She's she's just not showing up anymore. Yeah. Maybe she's still alive. Who knows? In it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's interesting to see that and like in terms of like especially with our movie brains and kind of just seeing uh what i've seen with the with the show and just watching like seeing the the creators be like where is the right time to cut this mm-hmm. or is the right time to add this because there is a lot there's a decent amount that is added yeah. that is especially in the third film uh, yeah actually a, a ton of the uh runtime of all three of these movies is actually like totally reanimated yes um, yes you know they had extra budget from all those plastic toys they'd been selling and uh God. the advertising uh, revenue from the reruns on tv um that they could afford to kind of redo some bits um and make them a little more polished but yeah there there are entire not just visual changes but narrative changes to make yeah. it all make sense yeah in a shorter amount of time which you have to because again taking 20 hours and taking, putting it down to seven <laughs> yeah it has no right to work as well as it does and yeah. it's one of those things too where it's like if you haven't seen the show and you go into these movies you're not going to think about these things this is just how my brain is because i literally just saw it like sure. four months ago yeah i will say i think um maybe maybe in two and three even more than in one mm-hmm. you can kind of tell at points that this is you know cobbled together from a, a greater tapestry but um it's it's still yeah an impressive job was done in in making this story make sense and Mm -hmm. resonate emotionally while cutting so much time yes Um, yeah can't overstate that yeah because unsurprisingly when you do go from 20 to 7 hours pacing is going to be a lot faster especially yeah. when you get to towards the end right where like yeah, three moves so fast three is three not even is, in a bad way it's just yeah. like wow this is clicking yeah cuz that was the most fascinating part of going through these films this time around and like with you and watching for the first time is watching like okay how many episodes are we going to get through technically narratively even cut content at all how much do we get through yeah and it's like it goes all three films, I think, do a decent job in terms of... I think the first film is, like, 9 to 10. Maybe it gets through 12 to 13 episodes. But, like, mm-hmm. it basically cuts, like, three of those episodes. Because they're kind of, like... They're filler, but also... It's one of those things where, like, they are important in the show. But when it comes to, like, trying to do a cohesive narrative that doesn't feel like it's meandering... Yeah. kind of have to cut that. Well, as when you get to, like, the third film... The third film's, like, doing 14 episodes. Yeah. It is literally doing the back half of the show where it's, like, it well, doesn't... Those are also naturally heavier episodes where yes. there's a lot more going on and the action all... has ramped up. Yeah. Like, the first two films are all on Earth, based almost. Yeah, for the most part. And then, I think, yeah, one... I think it's, it starts in space, and then yes. they go to Earth, and then, then the third one, two they go is back all to Earth. space. Yeah, and then yeah. three is... The back half of the series is back to space. It's Space Wars. <laughs> It's back to a war in space, and my God, uh, encounter just, in space, an encounter in space. Yeah. I, I, I do love the fact that, like, <laughs> of all the names you could give that, it is just like it's so casual. It's yeah. not like it's not like a finale in space, a clash in space. It is an encounter. Yeah, it is like it's almost like you've stumbled upon a war. The way that that right. wording is. Well, I kind of wonder. You know, I, I can't speak to this with any uh, confidence, but I kind of wonder if that's like a 
a translation thing. Like maybe the it could be. maybe encounter is the closest word to this particular Japanese word, but the Japanese word really carries yeah. more of a confrontation mm-hmm. uh, connotation to it. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's what they mean by encounters. It could Conflict be. in it, space. It could also be there's a very important character that is introduced yeah. in three who you she who is met in space. And so it could literally just be well, an encounter yeah, in yeah, space. Yeah. And it'd just be like, it's an important encounter, though. Yeah. They can't put an important In encounter. the sense of, yeah, close encounters of the third kind. It's that kind of encounter. Yes, yes, <laughs> Almost. Yes. Yeah, but, I mean, going right into it in terms of the first film, because there is, there is about a, a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. The, the gist of it is is it's been 79 years since mankind has started to move to space. Right. Where basically we now have colonies in space, and because of that, since the move into space, we have now we now go by a a moniker known as the Universal Century. Yeah, it's kind of is, they they kind of refreshed the the calendar when mm-hmm. they moved into space, uh, starting with this Universal Century, and we are in the seventy ninth, or I guess technically it would be eightieth year of this Universal Century. Yes. Um, so seventy nine years since yeah. they humanity began its migration into space mm-hmm. but in a uh, in 0079 of the universal century basically a war breaks out between space noids and humanoids <laughs> the space noids are basically run by it was originally the republic of zeon but yeah. is now the principality of zeon yeah. which is run by not fully fascist, but pretty much, you know, mainly fascist family. Well, yeah. The zombie family. Yeah, there's there's essentially, in this universal century, man, as mankind has moved out into space, they've populated these um, sort of uh, massive satellite structures around Earth's orbit um, called colonies, space colonies, um, that uh, are obviously full of people and kind of function as their own nations yes. or states within the United Earth Earth Federation government, mm-hmm. which is what it's called. Um, and there was one colony that, you know, felt, for whatever reason, you know, oppressed by the massive Earth Federation and decided to kind of declare independence or rebel against the Federation and mm-hmm. were kind of thusly named the the principality of zeon and yes. became this sort of insurrectionist uh regime fighting mm-hmm. against the overreach of the federation yeah and, and basically classic nazi fascism they take the people who were just want freedom from yeah. earth to live their lives in space and basically took it and took all that energy from the good people <laughs> and used that against earth leading to a grueling eight-month war mm-hmm. before this film takes place, which leads to most of each side basically dying and losing their resources and ultimately leading to a point where Zeon decides that the best way to stop or at least send a message to... Kind of a Hail Mary play yes, to end the conflict. To go against the Earth Federation, which is the quote-unquote good guys of this yeah. film... To basically send a message to the Earth Federation is to basically throw an entire colony into Australia. Yeah. They don't say it's Australia, but if you know a map, you know exactly where it's going. You can see the skyline. It's Sydney. (laughs) Yeah, you know exactly where it's being thrown. And so an entire space colony is thrown into the planet, basically killing 
I mean, most I mean millions, millions, millions I think, upon millions. I think I was reading somewhere. It's not really articulated in this uh, series no. or trilogy, but I think um, later media said that like twenty percent of Australia was just decimated. Yes, um, it makes and sense. of course there were more far-reaching effects. Of course, as with any large structure crashing into earth but yes yes. so millions of people obliterated in an instant yeah so after eight months of that they basically are stuck in a stalemate yeah and during this stalemate is when there is basically zeon finds out about a secret project that is happening on a colony called side seven and on side seven that you find out that that secret project is known as the mobile suit gundam Yes, and that is the introductory narration to this show. So that's all before the actual story takes place. (laughs) If you watch the show, you get that narration for at least 12 episodes. The introduction, and it's it's actually really fun because... Now in my brain, I just have it is the year 0079 of the it Universal Century. It is the year century. 0079. They've considered it a stalemate as Australia blows up in the yeah. background. So Z- yeah, Zeon's uh, plan, I think, was to kind of uh, replicate the effects of the uh, the atom bomb in World War II, hoping you know it was this hail mary play to end the war, hoping you know, oh, if we kill all these people, the Earth Federation will be like, all right, fine, you can be free. But no. after they did that, the Earth Federation dug their heels in and decided, you know, you guys are beyond evil and you need to be destroyed. <laughs> yeah, they fought um, harder. So, yeah, the, the war drags on after that rather than coming mm-hmm. to a cataclysmic end, which leads us to, yes, this the Gundam project yeah. being developed by the Earth Federation, be- which is where we find our story. One of the reasons Xeon has been doing so well in the war is because they have mobile suits called Zakus. Yeah. Which are, you know, basically the stormtrooper type mobile they, yeah, suits they're literally modeled after like stormtroopers from the yeah. world wars <laughs> yes like it's basically you think of the grunts in a in a suit in a robot suit fashion and you get them yeah and since zeon had those the earth federation had basically nothing and they've they've yeah. held their ground but had nowhere near the same kind of artillery so they create basically a mobile suit that could take on any other mobile suit yeah. And that leads us to where the film actually starts after the narration, which is on side seven, where we meet our Gundam pilot, Amuro Ray, mm-hmm. who is by far in terms of an in terms of an anime protagonist, because, again, the, watching this show and watching the movies, especially with the movies, is like you are watching something that is before, you know, what anyone thinks of anime, like when it comes to Pokemon or when it comes to Dragon Ball Z, like this is yeah. proto when like things are starting to really hit like across the globe to some way, shape or form. Right. You, you're getting a character like Amuro where it's like, what does this guy do? What does this kid do that really mm-hmm. like kind of basically leads any kind of protagonist afterwards to like, I need to follow that. Mm-hmm. And my God, <laughs> Amuro absolutely seals that deal and especially the first film he's pretty standard in that kind of regard he is he's kind of a blank slate to be scrawled upon he's a savant almost in terms of like i think it's almost kind of implied he has a photographic memory because a little bit because like especially in the beginning like there's another thing that they imply later on in the series but like at the time basically when zeon attacks side seven to get the gundam and other kind of they have other suits but they're like they're like c tier in comparison to the gundam yeah. uh because you have gun cannon 
which is just a red, like it basically just looks like a dude in a suit yeah. with a cannon on its back. Yeah, the, the Federation, despite being much larger and having much more money, is way behind Zeon in the, yes. the technological front. Um, and so they have very, they have very clunky kind suits. Of primitive, yeah. yeah. Uh, until the Gundam. Yeah, they basically have a red suit with a cannon on its, on its shoulder and a tank <laughs> yeah. with a body on top. Yeah, it's a uh, kind of like a centaur of a tank. It's yeah. a tank treads with a humanoid upper body. It kind of looks like something Sid from Toy Story would make <laughs> with Legos. Yeah. And like yeah. someone's toy. Like it just has that void of like, I get what you're trying to do, but this clearly is not going to save Actually, the war. Yeah, it also kind of looks like that one robot toy that's in toy story uh it doesn't i don't know if it has a name but it's like a background character it's like all primary colors and it has little tank treads and it has similar kind of clunky it has arms, arms and stuff i think yeah. isn't it like a barbie attached to it or something maybe gosh i i haven't seen the original toy story in a bit yeah yeah and so when zeon attacks amuro for some reason in his brain just decides to run at the gundam finds the instruction manual, reads it, has a pretty good idea of how to use it, gets in the suit, and basically bodies two guys. Yes, well, it's it's <laughs> worth noting, uh, um, our first the first time we meet Amuro, he, is, uh, he has locked himself away in a room in yes. his house. Mm-hmm. He is living there alone because his mother is on Earth and mm-hmm. his father is helping out with the war effort. He's not a soldier. He's a scientist working mm-hmm. on a secret project for the, the yeah. Earth Federation. And so Amuro is essentially living on his own in this house, and he has locked himself away in his house, digging through um, you know, computer files and documents uh, in his home, tinkering away at things. And so we kind of immediately get the impression, okay, this kid is a computer mm-hmm. nerd. He's a tinkerer. Yeah. And um, when... He, you know, when the the colony gets attacked, he his one of his first thoughts is like, "Oh, my dad is working with the Federation at the ba- at the military base here in the mm-hmm. colony," and so they kind of he heads that way, and all shit breaks out, and yeah, he finds yeah. himself in the Gundam itself. Yeah, and finds out that the secret project his dad's been working on is the Gundam. Yes, and and like, lo it's, and behold, lo and behold, he gets into it. He figures out how to use it, and basically after the fight on side seven, all <laughs> it's it's funny to think about just trying to condense the film in just like certain ways in terms of like basically all of the adults in some way, shape, or form, <laughs> or at least the military yeah. personnel that are adults have died during the fight against Zeon. So when they all escape in this new contraption basically it looks like a sphinx that flies <laughs> called, it's a brand new warship yeah called white base it is basically run by children because all the adults are practically dead yeah so the and, the opening attack on this colony where amuro lives side seven uh is a a surprise invasion by um Zeon, i think in a deliberate attempt to interrupt the the engineering of this secret project was, yeah i think it was initially trying um, to take pictures yeah and then some and then of the it breaks soldiers, out into it, a fight yes yeah. um, which it seems pretty common it seems like how, the amount of times that happens in the gundam show <laughs> where it's like we just want to do reconnaissance we're right. not trying to do anything rash does, something yeah. rash happens i i've heard that the mantra for the universal century across all the different entries is and then it got worse so, I mean, that makes, um, of uh, what I've seen, it absolutely makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. And uh, 
but yeah, so so Amro gets kind of thrust in the middle of this conflict, and because of this surprise attack resulting in the deaths of like pretty much all the officers and uh, authority figures and adults, um, I, we wind up with a spaceship full of children and teenagers run by a 19 year old captain who looks like he's 26 but that's just how they design that's it's i think adam makes a good point it's the sideburns i think the sideburns make him look older than he is but yes he is the only military personnel that is still kicking yeah think about hyde in that 70s show he's got sideburns and he looks older than everybody else that's true but yeah and i also want to remind everybody that this is a show for kids and this is a fun show i mean we basically are describing what actually happens in the show the yeah the on paper (laughs) plot events because in the first at least in i mean in the first 30 minutes of this film you have a fight breaking out you have the introduction of the mobile suit you have the first fight with the mobile suit which is so rad and so cool to see actually come into fruition just seeing amuro figure out how to run the thing but also you're seeing amuro's childhood friend a looser entire family in an accidental bombing you're seeing you know characters kind of run into like oh where are we supposed to go let's go into this white base and basically go okay now you're a part of the military yeah and now you're gonna uh, work in first aid and help and, all these injured people and you also find out that on zeon side there is uh, a very charismatic yeah very, very talented very talented very uh, noticeable character because he he's the only one that wears the outfit that he wears he's also the only one with a red mobile suit yes and he was by far my favorite character in all of gundam and that is a uh, char asnable yes who is you just sounds look, like a mouthful yes it is. that is gundam in a nutshell is like that sounds like something or that sounds way too long yeah <laughs> but basically you also find out that char may or may not have a family member on side seven yeah. We don't know for certain. We do know. But, like, <laughs> at least in the show, it makes it pretty clear that, like, he accidentally runs into his long-lost sister in episode one. Yeah. It's crazy how early that happens. It, it happens so um, early. Every time they meet in through these films, it basically is, like, a random encounter on, like, a desert planet. In the middle of a battle or In the middle something. of a battle or, like, they're stuck in a cave and it's yeah. like oh hey it's my sister like right. it, it never is like planned most times right and so you've got this kind of um yeah you've got this interesting dynamic where your main villain is sort of attached to your main group of protagonists mm-hmm. in a in an interesting way but you don't really know much about their relationship no. or how they got on opposite sides of this conflict or, or what their history is exactly. Um, but it does create kind of an interesting little emotional dynamic as you have, uh, her name is Sayla, this uh, crew member of white base who is secretly the sister of the, uh, the greatest threat to the crew. I'd say the, 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 a reinter reoccurring antagonist. Yeah. Cause there are, there is a rogue gallery of antagonists in this film. And, and Char is almost kind of like he's he's almost more of a rival, like your Pokemon yes. rival, than uh, the arch villain of the series. Even though he is does kind of wind up taking the main antagonist role, at least from Amuro's perspective. Well, actually, this is might be something you you'd be able to like explain if because I feel like you've done a little bit more you've done more research on this than I have in terms of like the production process. But, oh like, yeah. During at the end of the first film, when everything kind of 
settles down to a degree oh, in terms we, of the Earth Federation. We should make a little disclaimer. Probably going to do like light spoilers throughout the trilogy. May try to not yeah. give away the, all the biggest beats, but um, yes. we do. You know, as we're talking about all of them, we are going to get into some plot details. But oh yeah, watch. Definitely, watch. we want to keep it just light enough that it's like you can still watch these and find new things in it and everything. So. Yeah, in short, in case you haven't noticed in the. 40 minutes we've been talking <laughs> absolutely watch all three of these films and if you don't want to get spoiled by these little slight spoilers watch the films and come back and then yeah. listen to it but yeah it, i mean at the end of the first film when um uh, i guess we're going into slight spoilers when a certain zombie dies <laughs> yeah, yeah and it basically leads to the zombie family mobilizing a little bit more and being a little bit more intense at a certain point in the film's Going into the second film as well as the show, Char just goes away. There's a good yeah. chunk of the second film where Char's just not involved. Yeah. Where Amor, clearly Amaro's rival, and especially in the show, because in the show, by the time White Base and company finally get to Earth after they escape Side 7, Amaro, I believe, has fought Char four times. Like, and it's like almost every episode while they're in space. Char basically fucks with Amaro, calls him a little bitch, and leaves. <laughs> and Amaro hates that because he's 15. Yeah. Of course he's going to hate that. Yeah. But, like, in the movie, like, they clearly cut down those encounters because, of course, you have to. and Because it's not encounters in space in the first <laughs> film. It's, it You have to just get to Earth. But it's just kind of fascinating to think that, like, when they do the compilation trilogy, they can't even figure out a way to bring back Char earlier. Yeah. Like, it has to be like how the show is, where it's like Shark kind of just goes into the background for a little bit. And then when you least expect him to come back, he comes back. Yeah. When they're in, because in the second film, he comes back. I think they come back when they're in Belfast, right? Something like that. They're in Belfast in the second yeah. film. And so, this, this series, or I mean, even the compilation films, or maybe especially the compilation films, are this just flurry of plot events uh, yeah. thrown at you. It kind of has to be. Not even in a way that's, you know, detrimental, but it, it can <laughs> make it a little bit difficult to recount in yeah. exact order um, as, you, as we recall them talking yeah. about these. Yeah, because if you want to watch, if you're like, if you want to watch a show, like you really want to fully commit to a show that is actually going to give you all the beats of seeing a team build from the ground up for 40 plus episodes. You get that with the original movie suit Gundam. Yeah. If you like that idea, but you don't have 20 hours, <laughs> the compilation trilogy does a decent amount of job doing that. Where in terms of like, it doesn't really give every one of the characters a time to shine unless you're Amuro or maybe Kai, who's basically yeah. a sniveling coward in the first film, but by the third film is bodying full-blown mobile suits yeah. left and right. I, yeah, I would say there's about four or five crew members of White Base who kind of get their their yeah. fair due of mm -hmm. like, this is what this character's role in this team is, here's mm -hmm. their emotional journey, here's how they get from point A to point B in the movies. Yeah, um, cause, cause like, And there are definitely others that get highlighted mm -hmm. in the show, but you get your kind of main pod in yeah. these movies. Because you basically, there's in the show and in the movie, there is a character named Hayato, who's, yeah. who is the same age as Amuro, and is a friend of Amuro's. Yeah, but like, I think he lives across the street. Yes, he does. And basically, he pilots the gun tank. Yeah. Because, of course, he does, because they have no adults. Right. And Hayato in the show, I think it's more character development rather than, like, development as a soldier because he's not really a soldier because he's a child yeah but like if you watch the films 
and like your Adam when like Adam's watching these films and like when Hayato in the third film basically has a moment where he's like I just can't be Amuro I I'll always be second fiddle to him like Adam's like I don't give a fuck what this guy is saying <laughs> because Hayato's not really a big part in those films because again one of the downsides of the film is like you can't really develop everybody equally yeah. or at least give the time to develop it you have to pick like you said the five people which would be Probably Amaro, Sela, Bright, Mirai, and yeah, Kai. Kai. Kai gets a whole arc. Yeah, Kai. I mean, Kai is an interesting one because Kai in the show is. Yeah, I mean, he is. He's a sniveling coward in both the films and the in the yeah. show. But what's great about Kai, especially in the back half, is you know he he fails so much in in this film and then like a good chunk of the second film he is not good. He is in the gun cannon, which is. Again, at least he has legs, unlike the gun tank, but he really is not a soldier. And yeah. Kai is basically like, if someone says, like, I feel like I'm like, if I was in Gundam, I'd be more like Amuro. Nine times out of ten, most people would be more like Kai. Yeah. You'd be a person who really doesn't want to be, like, thrown Try into a military. Trying to stay out of the danger and yeah. you know, skirt the dirty responsibilities. Be thrown into a secret military operation where it's all run by children. <laughs> like, it really is. Like, he is constantly bitching, but it's clear as to why he's doing it. Yeah. And it's not until Soldiers of Sorrow where there's a moment where Kai basically, when he has a chance to leave, he fucking takes it. But, like, ultimately he's like, ah, I'm too deep. I'm yeah. too deep in. I Finds I got himself drawn back. In. Yeah, and he gets drawn back. He has a he has a moment where he could have a love interest, and in classic Gundam fashion, that fucking <laughs> goes away fast in a very sad way. Yeah. But then ultimately, by the end of the series, like Kai, I mean, in my opinion, like especially when we got into the sequel series, when we both kind of watched Zeta Gundam on our own, like when Kai returns, because since it's a sequel series, it has some returning characters. I loved seeing him come back. Yeah. And so, like, in these films, I do think they do a decent job of covering that. But also, it's, like, since it's speedrun through the series, you do kind of, like, you don't get enough time to not hate Kai. You just are mainly <laughs> hating Kai up until the third film. And well, then he starts yeah. bodying. I'm I don't know. I, I, I took to Kai pretty early on, mostly because Good. he was... Uh, um, I, I like yeah, his design he is, too. He's, he's sniveling and yes. he's a coward, but it's like, yeah, like you said, you it makes sense why and like kind of yeah. all the reasons he gives make sense, especially for somebody his age. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also hilarious while he's doing it, you know, to yes. to make yes. kind of a a very uh, uh, modern and current events parallel. Uh, I've got Succession on the brain, uh-huh. and he he reminds me of like. Uh, Kieran Culkin's uh, Roman Roy or Cousin Greg on Succession. They're like, they're these these little shits that you kind of hate. Or like if you knew them in person, you would hate them. But as characters on a show, you're like, you know, this is great energy in the midst of all this. This little fuckhead. God damn. I mean, if if the mobile suit live action film actually was made in like the fucking early 2000s, Kieran Culkin would have killed it as Roy. Or would have killed it as, as Kai. Kai. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, that that comparison is perfect. I do. He does it, the little I know about Succession. It is very much that he is, he is a bit of a dumbass, but he's not as stupid as he lets yeah. off. He really is. He really just wants. He just wants a normal life. He doesn't want to be a soldier. He has yeah. no interests. And I think it's actually fun to have him as a foil to Amuro to a degree because Amuro yeah. fully just accepts being a soldier, and that leads him to have 
uh, uppercase, italicized, boldface, you know, space between each letters, a trauma yeah. to an umpteenth degree to the point where at the towards the end of the first film going into the second film and most of the second film is basically him dealing with the fact that like he is having a hard time killing people <laughs> yeah which is not surprising right but like he is a 15 year old who is basically told hey uh this war is only we might only win this war because of you and yeah. because of this base so uh you have to fight yeah whether you like it or not I'm, and so yeah deal with it i'm i'm glad you brought up the contrast between uh kai and amuro because we we should talk a little bit more about amuro and his place yes um early on and also just throughout this whole story um as yeah he is very much thrust into this role of kind of the main um you know the main powerhouse the main weapon of the white base the protector of white base and ultimately kind of has the whole earth federation's uh, side in this war resting on his shoulders yeah. because he's piloting the most powerful weapon in the war um yeah. totally by accident but um it's also interesting um thinking about you know in, in 1979 to talk a little bit about kind of the conceptual origins of uh of gundam mecha shows as they exist were like as they existed then were like kind of like superhero shows where it was like the robots were either alien beings or godlike beings yeah. or things unearthed from the ground um who were totally sentient and befriended a child and then the child yes. would like you know get in danger and the robot would save them and then save the world or whatever yeah, you get something like gigantor which is like that yeah. era yeah. of like mech like i think that's the 50s so like yeah, that's yeah. Like old school mecha. yeah and kind of up until um creator Yoshiyuki Tomino uh, came on the scene with Gundam that's what Mecha was that's what robot cartoons were about yeah um, they were kind of clear light and dark good versus evil robot versus monster um, and then with with Gundam Tomino turned that into okay now the robots are weapons of war and children are thrust into war and mm -hmm. it's all embodied in our protagonist Amuro um, and so Amuro winds up in as, you know, I mean, Gundam as a whole winds up influencing the entire mecha genre and anime in general. And so Amuro, this kind of traumatized, forced into war, forced into conflict, forced into quote unquote heroism, uh, becomes this sort of template for a lot of anime protagonists moving forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, Probably a lot of our listeners have seen or know a lot about, at least through memes, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah, literally a show that doesn't exist without Mobile Suit Gundam and Devil Man. Right. Like it's yeah. basically mixing both of those. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most popular, basically, memes or kind of summations of that show is, uh, you know, Shinji, get in the fucking robot. Yeah, just and get in. That is literally what Amuro is dealing with for, at the very least, the first half of this trilogy, this series, is. Amuro, you're the guy who knows how to pilot this. Get in the fucking robot. And it's, he's like, I don't know how to do this. I'm I don't know how is, to kill people. I'm a child. It is um, fascinating. But he accepts it, yeah. Yeah, because it's like because I mean, going into this, going into both the show and the movies, you would have the kind of the anticipation or the expectation that 
since this is proto all of that, since it's proto what Mecha will turn into yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s, and ultimately when it gets to the mid to late 90s with Evangelion, you would assume that the first Mecha show is not going to be as hard on its protagonist because it's starting out. And Jesus, is that not the case here? Because, <laughs> yeah. like, if there's anything that, like, I think kind of just, like, summarizes everything that Amaro goes through to a degree all the way up to the end of the show is there is a shot in the, the end of the first film where thunderstorms are happening. Mm. And there's a bunch of kids that lived in space for the majority of their lives. They do not know what thunderstorms are. <laughs> and so, you know, basically these kids are freaking out and they're trying to check on one another. And so Frau Bo, uh, Amaro's best friend, she basically checks on Amro, and when she walks into his room, I cannot fucking... It's hard to describe. You have to see it. The room is completely dark. He is sitting up in the fetal position in his bed, and when the lightning strikes and you see his face, his eyes are completely They're white. blank white. He is having a fucking war flashback. He is having, yeah. he's he's having PTSD. He's having post-traumatic stress disorder and being 15 years old, and he's only been in the robot for, like, two weeks at that point. <laughs> yeah. Like, it is just, like, that is in the first film, and it doesn't get any easier for him. No. It yeah. lit- it's so fascinating to think about, like, the later Mecha doing a good job of being, like, even Tomino at a certain point feels like, ah, I'm at this point, I'm just making a vegetable. Like, in oh, terms right. of a mental vegetable, like, this boy, if he keeps going through this, he's it's not going to be just, able to do anything. Right, yeah. And so, like, and then later shows go, like, no, I mean, we have to commit to that. Yeah. Like, Evangelion, you basically. Get Evangelion, where it's not only that. an existential crisis, but, like, It's an all. It's yeah, all a universally it. existential crisis. But what's, I mean, what's great about Amaro too, is, like, he is... He is not treated as the kind of protagonist where he can do everything and everyone loves him for doing that. He literally is treated as he is good at what he does. Therefore, he must do it or we are going to die. Yeah. It is. It is. He's good with machines and we have a machine that needs piloted. Therefore, put him in the machine. Yeah. He is super quick on everything. At a certain point. In He's these... also helped. They, they make yeah. an important note kind of throughout the first two movies that like. Amaro's kind of carried by the just the base abilities of this machine. The Gundam yeah. is just that advanced. It's so fast. It has so accurate. It has machine guns on its head. It has two beam swords, beam and, sabers. Yeah, and on a, its a shoulders. beam rifle. And, and a, at this point, beam technology is unprecedented in yes. the war. Everybody else is using just ballistic weapons and a big ass rocket launcher. Right. He basically has an and entire he's artillery. Than everybody else. Yes, he is. <laughs> God, even before he starts doing, he starts training to get better than the second arc villain, which is in the second film, Ramba yeah. Rall, who we oh, love. We are Ramba Rall stands on this yes. podcast. Before he even gets to that point, like he is super fast. And then when he finally fights somebody that is faster and more experienced than him in fighting, he basically trains to the point where he's even faster than he was yeah. in the beginning. And then in the show, which they cut this from the third film, which is fine, basically in the show... He gets so fast to the point where the suit, the fucking suit itself can't even keep up with him. Yeah. So they have to basically switch out the... The joints. The joints. They put like, I think they call it a a magnetic coating to make the joints move more fluidly. Yeah, they basically take out the joints and then rub the entire suit down with a kind of (laughs) coating to make it faster for him. Yeah. Like he he is a savant, but he also is aware that Zeons call him the white devil. 
Yeah. And he doesn't How does that like sit that? with a 15-year-old boy? Yeah. Who really wants I've to be called the white killed devil? En- killed enough of these soldiers that they call me a devil. Um, and they don't yeah. even know who I am. And he's not even technically white, is he? <laughs> well, the Gundam is. No, I know. But, like, I mean, I mean like, Amro himself. Because he's, like... Uh, yeah, I think he's... Uh, he he's ch- of Canadian origin, but I think... Is he? I, I think I wrote it on a... Or I read it on a wiki page that, like, his mom is Brazilian or something. Yeah. So he's, like, half or part Brazilian. Okay, so is his dad Canadian? Okay. Yeah, but he was born in Canada, which okay. is not even brought up in the show but it's like a part of the lore well i mean nonetheless in both in the show and the movie when anyone just kind of looks at him and goes you are basically the destroyer of worlds (laughs) and he's six he's like 15 is like that is i don't know how to process that and of course he doesn't that does lead to a point in the second film because again we're going to be jumping around here because with the first film, while we're kind of talking about it all as one, yeah, we kind of have entity. to, yeah, you kind of have to because and we'll periodically I mean, kind of break yeah. it up, but yeah, yeah, because I mean, ultimately, the first film was, in my opinion, the weakest mainly because it has to do oh. so much, yeah. it has to do so much groundwork, literally, literally getting to the ground, it has to literally get to earth, <laughs> yeah, in like 90 minutes, and then the last like 30 minutes is like prepping what the earth stuff's going to be in Soldiers of right. Sorrow. And then in Soldiers of Sorrows, when basically all of the big dramatic beats hit in terms of, like, there's a point where White Base, you know, feels like they're doing too much on Amaro, so they want to try to train other people to do, uh, to work on the Gundam, but Amaro believes if they do that, he'll become useless, so he fucking steals the one thing that can help the Earth Federation. And thankfully, in the show, it's longer and I fucking hated it. I was one of the least favorite parts of the show. And in the movie, oh, yeah. it's like 15 minutes. <laughs> and it also gets some new animation where I went, holy shit, that's definitely new. That yeah. looks good. Yeah. <laughs> but Amuro, like, you know, you have the stuff with Amuro. You have the fact that Bright's a 19-year-old trying to basically herd cats mm-hmm. in a in a flying sphinx with a <laughs> a secret weapon that could, you know, turn the whole war. Mm-hmm. So that's great. You have Sela dealing with the fact that her brother is Shar Asnabol and ace pilot of the enemy yes, army, and realizing that like at a certain point that's gonna probably come back to bite her in the ass at one point. Yeah, yeah. Frau Bo basically trying to be a good friend to Amaro, but ultimately Amaro is just a sick, is a fifteen year old boy, so he's an angsty piece of shit that is yeah. also dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder she is fra is also saddled with kind of the maternal responsibilities of the crew because she's put in charge of the youngest children and also like the medical bay yeah Uh, so she's taking care of everyone meanwhile she is herself a teenage girl and having a meltdown which you probably would love this in the show thank god i mean i'm glad they cut this for the movies because it makes sense to cut it in the show there are full episodes (laughs) there's a full episode where there are a bunch of people that they save on side seven that are older but are not soldiers. And at one point, those older people, basically, they want to be put on Earth. But White Base can't drop it because if they drop it at a certain place, certain spots of Earth are taken over by Zeons. Yeah. And so to try to force White Base to go down, basically a lot of the older people on there kidnap Frau and <laughs> use her as a hostage to try to push people to like land the White Base and on the top of that, too, the, the kids that she takes care of, which are, <laughs> I don't, they're not called this fully. They're just called the orphans by the team, but they're called by fans the war orphans. Yeah. Because they are literally three kids that have lost their parents and have no idea where they are. 
And in the show, there's a certain point where, like, they could drop off the orphans to kind of, like, not have to be a part of the war. Right. And when they do that in the show, they get dropped off at a at – a, I can't even say it's so hard. But basically, they get clock, dropped off at a clinic with a bunch of other orphans. And basically, all these orphans just start crying because they realize they're never going to see their parents again. <laughs> and it's like, of all the things yeah. to cut from the show to put in the movie, I get it. But, like, that would be kind of <laughs> – that would be wild. I'm yeah. wild that it's like, oh, wow, this is something that's completely missed going into <laughs> the movies. But understandable because it's already sad enough. Yeah. But, hey, at least you get the arc where the orphans find the bombs that Xeon put on mobile suits and so the kids grab all the bombs and drive a car out of (laughs) again this is a show for kids yeah just constantly remind yourself that and if that gives you any interest to watch the movies already even after all these little spoilers fucking do it because it's it just keeps getting weirder and wilder from there yeah in terms of how it commits to it it's it's an amazingly versatile show yes in in that it or series in that yeah, it was made to appeal to children, but designed in, in such a way and written in such a way that it's kind of endlessly mineable for, for um, mm-hmm. you know, philosophical depth and uh, thematic, I, thematic uh, you know, exploration and that sort of thing. I mean, it's war is bad is, yes, a summation of kind of what this is all about, but there's so many little nuggets of yep. like... This yeah. is what it's like to be in war. This is what it's like to be, you know, um, dismissed and cast aside by adults as a child. This mm-hmm. is, you know, what it's like to take a life, you know, <laughs> yeah. all these little pieces. And this is what fascism is, or this is how mm-hmm. people unwittingly become fascists. Yeah, or... this, is, this is how both sides do bad things or pretty much, you know, yeah. unethical things in order to get an upper hand in this fight. Right. And it's one of those situations where you can see in this trilogy that Tomino had so many plans for what he wanted to do with this in the initial, like, possibly 80-episode run of the show in yeah. terms of getting grayer and grayer with its social commentary. Right. But ultimately doesn't really get to except for those nuggets. But thankfully is able to play with that grayness in later series yeah. and in later films. But it's fascinating to watch this and just you just see the inklings of a creator that is like, I could probably put this in, but I don't think I'm going to get away with it. So I'm going to make it black and white, but I'm going to really, really dig deep. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to really dig into it. And it's fascinating to see that just out the gate, yeah. just to see a trilogy of films that really just do not hold back. And even if it, even if it technically did like in production, if they had to at certain points, you can't tell, yeah. which is what I really like about this yeah. trilogy as well. It's like, even when you get to the point where they didn't even want it to end, but they had to due to being canceled, they do it so smoothly that you don't even think about the fact that, like, oh, this could have been, like, the an encounter in space could have been maybe another 40 episodes. Yeah. You don't even think about that because it's just so well done. It's so engaging. It's so much fun. It's so worth getting to that bombastic third film, yeah. which is... Just, I mean, because, like, in my in the show, like, the space stuff is my favorite stuff. Yeah. Because even the filler stuff in space is fun. It actually adds a lot. It adds some little stuff to it that's really good. And ultimately, when we get 
into space, there's really only one aspect that I despise more than anything, which we can talk about. But <laughs> before we get into space, is there anything in soldiers that you wanted to talk about? Besides um, Ramba, besides, is there any specific death or any kind of events you wanted to talk about? Well, it's, it is interesting how um, the, the second film kind of, and you know, the middle arc of the show, I guess, but the, the, second film really distills it in a really powerful way i mean the the title soldiers of sorrow is Mm. kind of perfect for the middle entry because rather than um you know going bigger going more bombastic going you know crazier war conflicts in the second film it really the story kind of turns inward to the crew of white base and the tragedies that they encounter and the emotional journeys that they're on you get multiple you know uh kind of good guy deaths throughout um and even a you know a sympathetic villain death um, yes which or that, sympathetic that, antagonist I which should say. the lead up to that death is such a cool fucking idea in terms yeah. of what it does in terms of how it leads to that it's something that like ultimately when they if the if the live action film actually becomes a series the netflix is producing i they need to keep that shit because that is just it's so much fun to see a show about robots be like, let's have an action sequence that really doesn't pertain to the robots more than right, anything. Right, right. And just, like, do it well, especially yeah. with the budget that they had, especially what they could do. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think the the second one does kind of what all good sequels do in that it opens up all the main characters for more mm-hmm. emotional exploration while still advancing the stakes of the mm-hmm. greater conflict. We get a great moment finding more about Amaro's mom and yeah. her side of the story and right what's she been up to on her yeah and oh boy and what does she think of her son being an ace pilot oh boy i bet she thinks he's a hero <laughs> i bet if, she's thrilled if it was the 60s she'd probably be very excited <laughs> but it's not um you get a good sense of just where the team is at i mean at, in terms of the development of the team and where i think like it, it kind of is lacking in the first film and especially lacking in the third film mainly because there's one relationship that has to get developed more than anything, a certain triangle mm-hmm. of sorts. Yeah. But the sequel, Soldiers of Sorrow, is really where you get all the kind of the grunts getting a, a bit more of love, whether it's yeah. Kai, whether it's Frau, Sela, Ryu, Hayato a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. definitely Bright. Uh, Bright's, Bright is basically a stiff for the majority of the series, and he has to be because he's the leader. And he's like he's a lot the of backbone. Yeah, a lot of his arc in the show is mainly trying to figure out now how do I reach these keys, but also like <laughs> how do I how do I deal with this? Yeah, because I there I, are just yeah little touches for Bright all throughout just to mm-hmm. kind of give him that humanity you need because he yes. is yeah he is kind of the not not stick in the mud but like kind of structural. Mm-hmm. interior of the white base because so he's mostly serving kind of an expositional yeah functional form but i yeah i love how this show kind of periodically dips in it's like here's kind of what's going on in bright's head right now yeah. or here's what's going on in his his emotional space you, you have to do that because out of all of the white base characters his his family background or where he's from is very limited yeah you, you don't, don't get actually, a lot of his history yeah you don't even know if his family died on side seven or were even on side seven you just know that he was stationed at side seven yeah he just happened to be on white base his superior officers commanding officer gets hit during the first attack in the first film and yeah. basically has to take over and with bright 
Bright's also kind of his biggest moment, I would believe, in the whole series is being the first to realize that Amuro is more than just intelligent. Yeah. He's more than just, he has more than just a photographic memory. There is something different about mm-hmm. him, which well, I think would lead perfectly into talking about three, because mm-hmm. in three, an encounter in space, out of everything it has to do, after the fact that it has to basically take 15 or so episodes and kind of finish it all up in a very cohesive way and basically tie up all the loose ends with the villains because at that point there are four zombies <laughs> that have not been talked about because in the second film they don't do anything with the zombie family in terms of like yeah, fighting them. Yeah, dealing with Ron Baral. Yeah, you're, feeling, you're finding basically the grunts per se mm-hmm. and in the third film you basically have to go through that but the big thing in the third film that is like it's it's the hardest thing to really get people into. It actually, it's something that is difficult to the point where it's divisive amongst Gundam fans, <laughs> and that is the introduction of the idea known as a new type. Yeah. So where... we you we talked about earlier how um, kind of an ongoing conflict in the first two is Amaro sort of being being carried by the Gundam, the yes. abilities of the Gundam really winning him the day every time or not in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but something that's kind of brought up in little whispers and murmurs and various conversations throughout the first two films is this kind of theory that some of the members of white bases crew are what they call new types. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a running theory in the earth Federation that the reason why the earth, <clears throat> white base has been so lucky is not because they're good at what they do, but it's because they basically have a sixth sense of sorts yeah. that basically helps them get out, get around danger, basically give them an upper hand when it comes to battles, yeah. when it comes to just, like, finding each other, like, if they get separated. Yeah, and so I can't remember if it's in... It's either late in the second film or early on in the third film. Um, the story kind of takes a pause to sort of take you back to... Um, sort of the the origins of the conflict and the gist of the new type theory is mm-hmm. that um zeon zoom daikun the kind of public official military or i don't know if he was a military leader but he was a politician who kind of spurred on the the rebellion of of what would become the principality of zeon very charismatic leader he proposed this idea that um as humanity moves more fully out into space we would develop a kind of greater understanding for each other, greater instincts and that sort of thing, and would essentially in some ways kind of evolve into a, quote, new type of humanity. Um, mm-hmm. And that that theory was just that. It was a theory. It was vague. It was like, I'm not saying that we're getting superpowers. It's I'm saying we're going to have to adapt. It was considered almost like a tinfoil hat theory by the yeah. Federation. and But it is ultimately one of the reasons why a lot of Xeon people, of course, the Xeon Federation, and, well, at the time, the Republic of Xeon, and why a lot of space noids followed Daikun. Right. Because it was, not only is it saying, hey, the longer you live in space, you could be fucking cool. It's also just saying, like, there is a benefit to pushing away from Earth and realizing yeah. our our full potential in a in space in a new environment and you know what that of course gets twisted into by the zombies and other other leaders of the uh zeon rebellion is you know 
kind of a uh, with a superior race. Yeah, it's a supremacist uh, <laughs> yeah. ideology, Here which in... is not what it was intended to be yeah. originally, but that's what it became in this into this mm-hmm. concept of yeah, spo- space noids are evolutionarily better. Yeah, the reason why I brought up very early on that like zombie is like pseudo fascist, but clearly are. Is the fact that, like, most of the family doesn't really talk about, like, being a superior race or anything like that. They're just no. kind of assholes. They very they pretty much feel like oil tycoons or billionaires that, like, don't yeah. give a fuck about the normal man. But a certain family member in the zombie family, <laughs> who's the oldest son, uh, Giran Zabi, right. is basically he is a full-blown fascist. And he's mm-hmm. aware of that. And there's even a conversation in both the show and the movies where basically his father... Uh, Daegwin Zabi, basically, who looks, I mean, Daegwin looks like a... Job of the Hunt. Yeah, he looks like a, an anthill that gained sentience. <laughs> and and wears sunglasses. Yes. Basically looked his son in the face and said, you know, a lot of what you're saying sounds like Hitler. And of course, in classic sci-fi fashion, Giran goes like, oh, you mean that, that hero, that guy from the Middle Ages? Yeah. The cult of the Middle Ages. And basically, after his dad tells him what Hitler did and his faults and how he basically ruined the world... Garen outright just says like ah Hitler sounds pretty rad yeah and now He's you like, know well, exactly why Hitler's problem is he didn't commit and I'm uh, gonna fucking commit and that's <laughs> Garen basically yeah and at the at the point in three when new types become more and more prominent in the conversation because in Earth Federation new types are brought up at the end of two when the Earth Federation is talking about what to do with White Base yeah where they're talking about the rumors and like do we push into those rumors which they ultimately do. Yeah. When they push White Base into space. Yeah, Bright basically keeps getting told for it through correspondence from his superiors, like, hey, we're pretty sure you guys, White Base, are the, the new type uh, unit. Mm-hmm. You guys are the, a, uni- a new type unit. And Bright's mm-hmm. like, I don't even know what that is. Um, I don't think you're right. We're just a bunch of kids. Yeah. Um, but the you know the generals and the higher-ups of the Earth Federation are all like, mm-hmm. now nah, we're pretty sure that ship's full of new types. Um, And so, yeah, they kind of get thrust into all these positions of Mm -hmm. great peril and huge dependency from the Federation because they are thought to be new types. Like a a great way to summarize what Bright has to go through with the Earth Federation is like he's basically a worker that is at the end of his shift and is constantly told someone's going to relieve him. And then an hour goes by and no one relieves him. And they say, don't worry, the next hour someone will relieve you. Right. And it doesn't happen again. And then ultimately someone comes up to him and goes, hey, you're such a good worker yeah. that you're going to have to go do this now. And it's right. like, excuse me? Yeah. And Bright, God love him, is nothing if not a good little soldier. Yes. So he's always going to do what he has to do, what he's ordered to do. Um, and so, yeah, he kind of gets stuck in this position of forcing this crew of juveniles to into perilous situations. I- I think uh, at a certain yeah. point of that, in the sh- I think at Soldier of Sorrow, it, they, he doesn't necessarily force them either. I think he kind of is like, listen, this is the time if you want to get off, this is mm-hmm. the time to do it. And at that point, no one's going to fucking get off. <laughs> They're because, all invested in each other. Yeah, because and... they almost got, they went through like the bombing of Jaburo. Yeah. They've, they've, at that point in the show, they had like basically fought like three or four different antagonists to take on. Like, yeah, all these kids who had nothing to do with the war are kind of now galvanized in the yeah. conflict and in their their loyalty to sort of one side of this yeah. issue. That, now they're basically yeah, now they feel leading like they have the effort. To, yeah, all, all because this one kid has the most powerful weapon on the base or yes. on, in the army. Yes, and 
when you get into three more, you realize how much new types matter in terms of not only just in that film, but for the future of Gundam, because they don't stop talking about them. Yeah. You realize the idea of a new type and the creator of the idea of the new type, Daikun, how he's important to Shar and Sela. You figure out basically why the Zeons are kind of committing to the new type or like basically what's so cool about three and new type is like it I think is one of the reasons why a lot of fans are very iffy on it what a new type means to a lot of people differs between series as well as person to person sometimes yeah and and certainly early on in this series Mobile Suit Gundam and in Zeta Gundam and in some other early media it's clearly deliberate within the story that everyone has these different interpretations of what it is because yes. it's meant yes. to be this. Yeah. It was a proposed theory about the evolution of humanity. Some people think it's more kind of a, a spiritual thing. Some people think it's like literally superpowers. Other people mm-hmm. think it's just kind of this frame of mind as we look outward into the far expanses of space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's actually something that I really love about this series is yeah. how it deals with this concept, this kind of, pseudoscientific or, or even fantastical concept um, and plays with it as oh, all yeah. these characters kind of throughout the series talk to each other and are like, you know, is this guy a new type? What even is a new type? I don't really buy into it. And, you know, mm-hmm. you get all these different perspectives on on what a new type is and what it means. Um, yeah. And it becomes, yeah, as you said, integral to the entire franchise or mm-hmm. at least the universal century, the main timeline. Yes. Um, and yes, you're right. It's it's something of a bit of uh, point of conflict among the fan base, but uh, mm-hmm. count me among the fans of the concept of yeah, new oh, types absolutely. and the way the whole series plays with it. Oh, for me too. Especially when it comes to its in the sequel series, Zeta, I think handles the new types much better than this does because it has more time to breathe. And now, since the introduction of it's already happened, they don't have to really introduce it anymore. Yeah. But what's great, in my opinion, my favorite part about the introduction of the new type is how Amaro basically gets in, in, in the kind of introduced to it. Yeah. Because what's so cool about all this happening, the conversations about new types, how you see Xeon sees new types, basically all these different kind of clashing, interesting ideas about new types. The one person that probably should know what a new type is, is Amaro. And this fucking guy doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't care. Again, he is so knee-deep in the war. He doesn't care what anyone gives him as an excuse. Anytime they throw that at new type at him, he just thinks that, like, they're just trying to, like, put him down in terms of, like, his actual prowess and experience. Yeah. And or pursuits. he thinks they're putting him up on this pedestal, and he's like, yes. that's not fair to me. Just uh, yeah, let me he, do my job. He does not want that shit. But it's yeah. not until he meets a certain woman, na- or a certain girl, named Lala in Encounter in Space that basically leads to a triangle I'm not even going to say it's a love triangle but basically just an emotional triangle between him this new girl he's met who clearly is a fucking new type <laughs> and a third character that we've already talked about a little a little man that we both love named Shar Asnable <laughs> who also believes in new types but nowhere near the same way that Giran believes in it where he thinks it's the superior race yeah it it the what I got from it is that Shar kind of sees it as, oh, some people get cool powers. Yes. Um, well, as sh- opposed to the more philosophical implications that his father 
believe or proposed. Yeah. And what's cool too about Shar and Amuro as a rivalry, and I think it's what shows what good rivalries do is show the pros and cons, the similarities and differences between the two of them. And the similarities they both have is like they are both thrusted into a position in, in a war that they don't really want to be a part in per se, but they both have goals. Yeah. They know what they want to do. And ultimately, both are used as an example of C. This is what a new type could be without yeah. either one of them really fully believing that they are one. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see that dichotomy between the two of them, especially when you get to the finale of three, where basically Char, at a certain point, and I won't say who he blurts it to, but basically blurts out how, what he fully believes a new type, what a new type revolution or kind of like a resurgent could lead to in the future of yeah. space. And that, in well, I don't think it's bad how it's shown in the films. It clearly, when he kind of does that whole blurb of like what he thinks of new types, that would have been something that was going to be maybe more developed in the longer series. Sure. But ultimately, what it leads to is the third film being the most interesting, as well as probably the best one, just because of how much it's juggling. And ultimately, even with all the shit it's juggling, it still sticks the landing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a finale that, like, even though I just saw the finale of the show months ago, like I remember it very vividly in my brain in terms of like when I, when I watched it and just how I felt being like, wow, I'm at the end of this. <laughs> and then watching this and seeing this interpretation, different music, different finale, just different enough that it's like, it feels more profound and almost final. And it just really does a good job of being like, damn, I really watched an experience with these films. Like, it really does have that kind of boom. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, because most trilogies, especially when we've talked about in the past, these tr- there are a lot of trilogies where, like, you know, this either you have a situation where the second one tries too much and maybe either flops, or the second one is considered the best in the trilogy, so the third film can't really recover and ultimately is kind of like the lame duck or the weird one of the three, usually. But ultimately, with this, this film takes everything that Soldiers of Sorrow and One does and brings it back around in a very satisfying conclusion that I think pretty much captures what makes Gundam special and fun and just, like, why it's lasted for nearly 50 years since yeah. uh, the show's inception. Well, yeah, besides the plastic models. Well, uh, I mean, <laughs> yes. I mean, that's the thing, too, is, like, a lot of the reason why these, I mean, again, the main reason why these films exist is because of money. Sure. Because they've sold a lot of money and because a lot of people were spending money to try to get their hands on episodes and try to mm-hmm. watch this and but even then, like, even if you even if that's the case, it still leads to a compilation trilogy that I think really does a intensify a lot of the good stuff that's in the film and in the show without having to force people to get multiple VHSs at once or <laughs> yeah buy a whole box set to watch the whole show you can literally then, just yeah, like sit through all the hours of, yeah yeah just watch one two and three and you get it yeah you, you just you get it just enough that you don't really need to you, d- you don't really need to go back to the show unless you're curious about what you've missed which yeah. and it, yeah oh go ahead no i, I mean because like i i personally enjoyed my experience and journey through the show just being like because it's it was i mean another reason why i like gundam is this because andy could maybe attest to this but like of as Star Wars fans, this was like the first thing I've watched in a while that kind of reminded me of like why I fell in love with Star Wars. Yeah, where it's like, holy shit, there's just so much that is like 
you could build upon from this yeah well there's and... yeah there's so much to appreciate on multiple levels yes. you know there's the depth Absolutely. of the narrative where it's like okay you've got this massive conflict and all these different moving parts all these people you can nerd out about the the technology of it mm-hmm. and the politics of it and the history of it but you know it's also this incredibly you know small intimate story about you know childhood and the loss of innocence and mm-hmm. the you know hor- horrors of war and and yeah ultimately the pursuit of mutual understanding um and that's that's really what i think makes the ending of this so effective is yeah although you know tomino had to cut the series short and end it quickly and Mm -hmm. you know uh kind of especially in this third film with it being a compilation of so many narrative beats you know the the plot elements the plot mechanics feel a little bit you know sped through but fortunately i think even with the original show he had his kind of thesis in mind enough that he got to have his his thematic resolution oh yeah in Absolutely. full flavor um yeah uh, and and so yeah you you get uh, obviously the kind of yes the war does end with this movie um but Mm -hmm. kind of the more satisfying uh resolution is this kind of bizarre cosmic emotional roller coaster that amuro goes through with shar and lala which i don't really want to spoil because it's a really fascinating um uh yeah kind of left turn at the end of this movie um Mm -hmm. that you know as people who have seen a lot of anime that was influenced by gundam before we ever saw gundam Mm -hmm. it's clear how the the ending of gundam really made a lot of waves um in in things like evangelion um even though it's you know thematically a little bit different there's that same kind of oh holy shit we're going into a whole new territory right at the very end here Mm -hmm. fascinating there's an singular extended scene in the third film that when I saw it in the show, initially, I went, this is wild. I'm loving this. I I wonder if the film, like, basically just kind of expands upon it animation-wise and would be kind of cool to see it, like, in a big screen, per se. Yeah. And when we watched the film and we got to that scene, it was like, fuck. The yeah. scene is just... I mean, it's, it's a scene that I think most people who, if you're listening to this or you're listening to this to somebody who has seen these films... We say one scene from a two and a half hour film, and they know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, like it's just a scene that, like, when we showed our friend Adam, Adam went, "Fuck, that yeah, looks phenomenal." And it's like, yeah, this is eighty two. <laughs> yeah, this is nineteen eighty two. And it's and it would... yeah, and it's yeah, not just emotionally kind of flooring, but yeah, yeah. visually the arresting music. in a way that's yeah. like I mean, I, I think all three of these movies are look really great for the time that they came out, um, and the budget that they had. Yes. Um but yeah, the it kind of goes in this whole other aesthetic direction for that scene right toward yeah. the end. And it's like, wow, I'm mm-hmm. having a whole different experience right now. If if you were ever a Star Wars fan or just a sci fi fan in general that like you watch something and you're like, I cannot I just, I can't wait to see if, like, this would get better with, like, more money or, oh, like, yeah. better animation. The Don't best, stop here. No, no. Gundam, <laughs> Gundam, 
Like there's there's a film later on, like again we talked about with Shar's counterattack, where it's like all this cool shit that happens in these films looks even fucking cooler and is just and gets explored even yes. more. Oh in my later god! Additions, yeah. It, yeah, and it's just it's one of those situations where because clearly at this point when this third film comes out, Tomino is clearly in process of doing Zeta because Zeta comes out in '83. Eighty-five. Is it eighty-five? I think. Yeah. So I feel like this is like at the point that this comes out, he has ideas of what he would do another series yeah. on, and so like, it's gone from like you know the original series and he being like, well, there goes my dream, <laughs> like cut Rupert from Survivor, like yeah. go, there it goes, yeah. to like so much for my dream, <laughs> to Tomino being like, people are liking these films, I think it might be time to actually reopen like what we want to do, yeah, yeah, and you and you see that. In, in this kind of reinterpretation and kind of extended version of this part of the show in this film, which ultimately leads to just, it's just such a damn good time. It's, it's just one of those things where it's like, we're not saying that this is better than any sci-fi series. We're not saying this is a replacement of any kind. This is clearly just like, like Andy said, this is such its own thing in Japan that like when you watch it, it just becomes another thing you just want to add more to whether that's just more watching this or just like information or kind of history or just like researching certain things like there's Gundam certainly has a very interesting history. Yeah. From yeah. like its initial universal century run that is still technically going to like when they start to branch off into different universes and dealing with different topics of different sci-fi topics. Yeah. And cuz like the current the current Gundam show which from Mercury, you don't even have to watch any of these things. Yeah, it's, these it's, things to watch. it's it's its own timeline not connected to the original. And it just sen- Universal it, Century. Yeah, and it does its own wild shit with yeah. Gundam. And it's and, dealing with transhumanism yes, and yes. You know, it's a it's a kind of starts out as an academia show where yes. it's like all these students mm-hmm. facing off against each other so it, it's, it's kind of building into piecing all these little different things together. It literally like starts off like, is this gonna become more Gundam later? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh, oh, it does. Oh, it fucking does. Yeah. Like, I mean, Andy can attest because like when we watched, we watched the finale to Witch from Mercury with one of our other Gundam friends, Patrick, and we were just like, holy fuck! It's nearly yeah. been fifty years since the first series, and it's still just being like pulling some real wild turns in the best <laughs> yeah. way, and. Yeah, that's what makes Gundam special, and I think that's why the compilation trilogy, why this movie trilogy works. Yeah, like it really just it captures the simplicity of certain elements and like what it builds it up from, and then like how it takes that simplicity to sneak in the intricacies of the gray area, social commentary, the you know kind of wild sci-fi ideas that are stuff you'd see in other sci-fi stuff, or you'll see mm-hmm. something like. Arthur C. Clarke, and even kind of similar to like the Shine stuff with Stephen King novels, you kind of see that a little bit more similarly in kind of how Tomino handles the new type ideal, and why other creators, because it's not just Tomino that kind of handles it later. Right? Yeah, it's it's expanded on by other other writers and directors throughout the series. But yeah, it's but yeah, I I think anybody who um, uh, appreciates kind of the the spiritual side of star wars in yes. how it deals with the force mm-hmm. um they are slight they're different things and kind of serve slightly different purposes within their narratives but i think anybody yeah. who's into that aspect of star wars 
would really get something out of the way Gundam deals with its uh, its kind of fantastical element of new types. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's yeah. I, I think it's the best case scenario of having kind of like living in a world where there's so much content coming out. Where if you feel like one thing is lacking, you can probably find something else that can kind of fill that void without kind of taking away from your love of some like that original thing where it's like with Star Wars, like Andy said, if you like that spiritual aspect and you feel it's a bit lacking in current Star Wars, go to Gundam. Like, yeah, go to Gundam if, and get a little bit more. It yeah, is, if you're again, if you're like us who who are like big nerds and love these kind of I, deep deep lore properties like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, that. Gundam can totally be your next big thing that Abs- you're a nerd about. Oh like God. it's got so much to explore and yeah. you know, don't let the the Western, you know, weeb judgment that we have over here that I like to throw around as a joke from time to time, um, get in the way of, of enjoying it. It's just a it's a damn good time and damn powerful storytelling yeah. that's been going on for decades. Yeah. And it's it's and it all started here. Yeah. It's the best. It's one of the f- most fun about doing these, doing our trilogies, is finding these films and just being like, best case scenario, you find a trilogy that just opens a fucking door to like just just a wave of just other content and well, it's just oh, yeah. like interesting ideas and just being like, well, if I'm ever bored, I can just pick this back up. Right. Yeah. I can open this door again and just let the waves hit me and just figure it out. But, yeah. That, I mean, that's how I felt because like when I as I mentioned at the start of the episode, when I kind of dove into Gundam, I went through the whole kind of original arc, which starts with this series um, mm-hmm. or this trilogy and uh, goes up through Char's counterattack in 1988. Um, mm-hmm. After that, I was like, okay, I'm done for now. I officially love this stuff, but like that was a lot and I'm going to sit on it for a while and I'll come back when I'm ready. And I did. And now I've watched a bunch of other shit that yeah. some of it is and some of it is not connected at all to the original um, story. But it's all it's all good. Yeah, it's all it's all good. And even the stuff that is considered weaker in Gundam is still fun. Yeah. Like if it's something where it's like even if it's dumb Gundam, because there is some dumb Gundam out there, <laughs> it's still good. It's still a fun, good time. But yeah, yeah I mean, that is the Gundam movie trilogy and Believe it or not, we will tackle this again at some point in the future. There's there's another compilation trilogy yes. worth visiting. So while we were talking, well, to, maybe not worth, yeah, but we're gonna. We're not <laughs> to clarify. We're not. This is not the next episode. No, no. We're gonna take our time on this because the other trilogy we're talking about is the sequel series to Gundam Zeta Gundam, also has a compilation trilogy. But the thing is, is that it was made in decades later, seventeen. Yeah. And so there is a little there's a little bit of a culture shock in terms of certain aspects yeah. of what they do with those films. But we're definitely going to touch upon them in the future. However, we are going to do a sci fi trilogy next time. <laughs> we're going to in late May, arguably just as influential as what we just talked about. I can't even say I can't even say yes to that. Arguably. Somebody uh, could argue. that. Someone could argue this, but <laughs> we thought it'd be fun to dabble into another aspect of sci-fi that we we haven't t- talked about in a while and that is a uh, trash sci-fi <laughs> something that is just uh we cannot believe something that we have to constantly remind ourselves is that a trilogy is a trilogy like it's one of the things that because we have a spreadsheet of all of the trilogies we could do it's like one of the things where both andy and i from time to time will see it and go okay 
I didn't know that was a trilogy. Yeah. Every one time of we us, see it, it reminds us yeah. that it's there. And even though one of us had to have written that in the spreadsheet, <laughs> so clearly we know, we yeah. just keep forgetting. But on May 27th, we will be tackling the Skyline Trilogy. <laughs> and if you don't remember the Skyline Trilogy, Which, you can't worry. be blamed. No. Um, you may or may not. If you know any of these, you might know the original film, Skyline. Um, which was an alien invasion movie, kind yes. of in the vein of Independence Day that came mm-hmm. out in, was it 2010? 2010. 2010. It was 2010. Um, and as far as I remember, kind of flopped at the box office, but yeah. somehow spawned two sequels that you've probably never heard of. Yeah, because the thing is, the film I remember, if anyone got interested, is because the trailer wasn't bad. Yeah. The first Skyline yeah. had a trailer that was pretty decent. It had a shot of like, two guys on a roof with guns and then in the background of like an LA skyline is like a giant fucking mothership. Yeah. Like that's how they kind of sold the film. And, but I also remember it, I think being like a September release, it comes by, it gets clowned on, doesn't get yeah. touched again until seven years later <laughs> when we get skylines. Or, no, we get holy beyond shit. skyline. Fuck. I forget that that's the second <laughs> one. In 2017, we get beyond skyline and which uh, we will talk about has a familiar actor that we both we both love but also hate that he's in films like this <laughs> yeah and uh in the third film which it came out in 2020 you know the perfect time to have right. a sci-fi trilogy ender called skylines yeah we have i'm just going to clarify here andy has not seen any of these no. and i've only seen the first one and i cannot tell you what happens in the first one <laughs> So this is going to be almost like fresh for both of us. Yeah. We're and it's going, going to be fun. We're going from all-time influential sci-fi to you've barely heard of it. Yeah. Sci-fi never should have been a trilogy, potentially. AK- we'll see. AKA why we did this podcast almost from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So we're fucking pumped. So yeah. tune in on the 27th when we do the Skyline trilogy. But as always, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. Thank you so much for listening.